This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, my peers, and welcome to another episode of the Peers Project podcast. Today's guest is a powerful and inspiring individual who I've been fortunate enough to gain a lot of wisdom from. He's the founder of 365 Underwear, a former Shark Tank Australia contestant, and now the CEO and founder of Sports Performance Training, a global company that sells game-changing sports tracking technology. So who is this inspiring millennial? Well, his name is Will Strange. I was fortunate enough to meet with Will several months ago here in Melbourne and learn about how he's redefined his own success by determining what he doesn't want to do, how he went against the culture at his prestigious high school and chose not to go to university, and how he's leveraged his networks from a young age to launch his company, SPT. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Will Strange. Will, welcome to the Peers Project. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me, Michelle. Of course. So, look, I reached out to you on LinkedIn um, after coming across your, your business, SPT, and I was super intrigued by you and what you were doing, especially your, your work overseas. Um, so I knew I had to sit down and interview you. So I, I really appreciate you meeting with me. No problems. Uh, excited to have a chat. Cool. Um, but before we go into your work, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, what did your parents do? And how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Yeah, um, so I was pretty fortunate that, to watch my um, old man grow up as an entrepreneur himself. So he ran and owned uh, businesses from a young age, um, sort of was thrown into it pretty early um, and been in pharmaceuticals to property to um, now owns a, a pub in um, Gippsland. So done a whole bunch of different things. Um, but it's, a, it's, you know, being an entrepreneur and watching him sort of live the life he wanted after working hard for a period of time. Um, still works very hard um, to this day, but, uh, you know, does also do what he wants and, and can manage things to how he wants. Um, was always that appealing lifestyle for me. So that was my father and, and mum was, um, was fortunate enough to be a stay-at-home mum um, or unfortunate enough to have me as a kid. Um, so she had to, you know, go through that whole process and, and, and was able to do that, which released dad to, um, to go off and, and work the, the hours he did. Mm. 
Yeah, very interesting. So, I mean, I always find it interesting to think that, you know, when you've grown up in a household where business is like the talk all, all the time, or you've seen your dad go out there and create these awesome businesses, um, it almost becomes normal uh, to, to kind of think of, of that as your trajectory. Did you have that those early thoughts early on? Like, you know, when you were in primary school, did you think, oh, it'd be so cool to start building something on my own? Yeah, you, you definitely naturally do. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I was very focused on sport and, and social life during school um probably too much so um but at the same time there was there was still things within me so um back at school sort of ended up starting a business essentially in year 10 and 11 because of the um the canteen hiked the prices of soft drinks so i ended up lugging a, a 24 pack of cokes and sprites and solos and things like that to school and, and sold them out of a locker for sort of a few terms and, and ended up actually selling that business which i don't know how that came about <laughs> because realistically there's no goodwill or anything there um but someone bought that locker that was essentially someone else's locker um and started selling out of there since i've been gone i don't know if it's still there that was 12 years ago 10 years ago but there, there were definitely components of it but it wasn't a clear focus it wasn't a you know discussion at the dinner table uh it was i think it organically goes through you but it, it's not necessarily sort of that manual discussion about it to, to to incite the conversations it just does naturally happen when you, when your old man's you know you're always asking them questions you visit them at work you listen to things but again it's it's more organic than than manual in that sense mm. Love that. So talk to me a bit about your um, sporting endeavours. So, you know, you said I was really you said that I was really into that at school. So what were those sports and why were you so into it? Uh, just any sport. Um, so I played sort of football, cricket water polo, um, a little bit of soccer, touch rugby, whatever I could get my hands on, whatever got me out of the classroom, whatever got me competing. Um, and it's quite interesting. I think that, that, that word is, is the reason why I like it. It's that competition. Um, the challenge of being better or being worse or uh, being able to pit yourself against someone and um, achieve through through a two-hour performance. Um, you know, life is a 75-year a performance, whereas sport's done and, you know, at the end of it, there's a result. Um, and I, I really like that facet of it. Unfortunately, it's probably to my detriment as well. When I play board games, I get too competitive. Um, but that's that's that competition streak within me. So with sports, it was just always the outlet that I could um, compete as hard as, I, hard as I needed to to either get where I wanted to go or realise that I wasn't there yet and, 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 and force myself to, to work harder. Mm. Where do you think that competitive nature comes from? Um, I don't really know. I think I think naturally the competitive side to people is born in, into people. I think, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, competition is competition in sports, but then that can even become argumentative and other, other facets of it, which, again, I'm, you know, it's, it's a work in progress for me. <laughs> um, but... Uh, I, I truly do think it's, it's born into people. Um, you can you can start to, and especially you know, employing people. One of the first things I try and figure out is how to incentivise people. And people relate incentivise to, to money, but I do to, to creating that goal. Or you know, what do people want? And if you can understand what people are driving for, you can actually create that competition in them. And it's the competition to get what they want. Some people naturally have it, and that's that that internal drive. Other people don't, but you can actually bring it out in them. Um, again, it, it is harder. Um, because it is it is something that is really intrinsic in, in most people, but um, yeah, for me, I think I think you're really born with it. Mm. I love that, and I love the um, 
comparison you made or the yeah with competition and ambition and drive and I think there is such a correlation there and you know um, sports people who are really into their sport who are competitive in that field often are competitive in others but that turns into a drive or ambition and so I find that really interesting so talk to me a little bit about you know you're you're you've just sold your locker <laughs> business um heading you know heading finishing off your years at school um and heading into uni what were your thoughts around that time there what what was running through your mind? Did you know what you wanted to do? Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I knew what I didn't want to do. <laughs> um, and I think going back over the, my past sort of, what, 12, 11 years since I finished school, um, what I learned is it's much easier to find what you don't want to do than what it is to find that you do want to do. So for me, when I left school, um, I ended up choosing not to go to university. So I looked at that and said, I, I know what's going to happen on Tuesday mornings. I'm going to get up and go, I can't be bothered going to, work, going to university today. Um, no one's watching me. No one's you know, making me go. I'll just go meet up some with some mates, watch some sport, play some sport, you know, do whatever, go out for beers that night, and then probably, you know, live Groundhog Day again by not going. So I knew that if I chose to do that, I'd fail. So my choice was to sort of get thrown into the workplace pretty quickly. Um, I went into um, commercial real estate at sort of a pimply-faced 18-year-old and and was pretty fortunate to get thrown right in the deep end straight away. So I was basically given a list of 1,000 people to call within my first two weeks and just try and figure out what I was doing. Um, Most of those were people that have told the company that I worked for to get stuffed um so they were you know really embedding that you know grain of it's it's a no until you turn it into a yes mm. so if you don't ask it's still a no um so that that desire to all right how do i get these out of these thousand how do i turn some of them into sales out of the thousand i turned one into a sale um which isn't a great strike rate but at the same time i learned that um that ambition can't be stopped and, it, and it's, it is a matter of numbers and as you get better and better and better those numbers become more in your favour but if you're not working through that you're never going to get there or it's going to be a longer journey so for me I chose to get into to commercial real estate was there for sort of two two and a half years after a period of time realised that that wasn't going to be my future um I sort of looked at a lot of people in the industry and, and you could see that they were still doing what sort of the junior guys were doing and, and it wasn't really that... It, that There was a sense of achievement in it, um, but for me, I just didn't see that being my sense of achievement. So I ended up going to a, um, actually one of my clients who I sold a lot of property for um, asked me to become a, a manager for him into his development company. Um, then after about six months, realised that I just didn't want to be in construction, didn't want to be in development. Um, so I re- removed myself out of property and realised that sales was my thing. I like talking, as you can probably tell. Um, and I really like exploring the opportunity and even the smell of a deal. So got into some advertising. And then after probably the 50th business, I pitched to my old man with a little black book that I've still got at home of all these ideas. He said, stop talking to me about it and go do one or shut up. Um, so... I did. Um, that was actually the first business, which was 365 Underwear. Um, but whilst doing that, sort of, we ended up, or I ended up sort of coming up with the idea of SPT. And I always call it we because it's me and SPT. And SPT is as much a part of, you know, it's basically a relationship I have. And it's, it's um, I don't call it my baby because I think it's actually grown outgrown me in terms of um, its skills and, and what it's doing. Um, but, I always do refer it to it as a we, and I don't know why. People always ask me, who's the other person in the we? I'm like, the brand. (laughs) 
But um, yeah, I sort of went along that journey without any formal education um, outside of sort of business studies at school, which most of the time I was playing um, some sort of computer game and not listening to the teachers. So that was a, a bit of a different way to go about it. Um, and that's that's the way that I've found that's brought out that drive and that success. And I shouldn't say success, but that um, that ability for me to find what I think I'm good at. Mm. I love that. And I think it's it's so cool to hear the different paths. And I think that, I mean, I talk a lot about this, this like traditional trajectory, like good school, good high school, a good university, good job. And I think that um, so many of us are thrown on that path and it's almost strange to not go down it. So I find it fascinating that you actually kind of went against the crowd, I guess, and went against what society tells us and, and just went, you know what, university is not for me. So how did your just out of curiosity, so many questions come out of what you just said. I have so much to ask, but I guess one of the first ones would be, um, how did your parents take that initial, I'm not going to go down that route and I'm going to actually pave my own path? Yeah, well, my my old man didn't go to university as well. Huh. So he and, – and that wasn't a conscious decision I made because of that. It's I, Even reflecting now is the first time I've really thought about that. But he was – you know, he was running his own business um, or the family business at, I think, 19. Um, so, you know, it wasn't always set for me to go to university. My eldest sister, who's a couple of years older – did go to university but didn't finish, decided to get into the workforce as well. So it, it, maybe it's a, a family thing that we're um, not necessarily driven to that, although my younger sister did and she studied law and, you know, <laughs> did the complete opposite and, and actually studied. Um, and she's, you know, finished and all that sort of stuff. So she always says that she's the only one that's finished university in our family. <laughs> but, yeah, for me it was it was pretty easy with, with mum and dad. They realised that's not how I was driven. Um, and I think that, you know, that's credit to them that they didn't. And I, I've seen other mates of mine that were forced to go down that path and and either, you know, changed after two or three years. Um, but again, you're still learning something there. Um, I think everything is learning. And it's there's it's not black and white. There's no one path. But I do, you know, remember leaving, leaving Scotch College and um, the, the teachers, I remember one of the teachers, and I won't mention his name, but... Um, I remember very vividly saying that we believe that you're not going to university is a failure to scotch um, and it actually hurts our numbers. And funnily enough, about a year ago, he rang me up and asked me if I could speak at their career day. Um, and I said, if you really want me to, I'm going to give my opinion. And it's going to be that, you know, that that isn't success. And, and the fact that schools and private schools and, and, and this ambition of schools to get their numbers up actually is a deterrent potentially to some people learning different ways. Um, so that's you know, always been in the back of my head. It's, it's, some people call it a chip, I, I call it a driver. Um, but I do, do remember that pretty vividly. Mm. I love that. And for all of our, you know, listeners over in the UK, the US, Scotch College is one of the leading um, high schools here in Melbourne. And so I'm not surprised, as in like, that, that may sound bad. I'm not even surprised that the school was like, why are you, you know, doing this to our numbers? And I think that it is a, it's a really poor, poor form, I guess, in, in some respects. Um, but I love that you were able to power through and stick to your guns and make that happen. So I guess the, the question that I'm intrigued to ask you next is around when you were at, um, you were in this commercial real estate and you were given this a thousand numbers to call, you know, what goes through your head when you have to accomplish a task like that? What, how do you go about achieving the result that, that they want from you? I think looking back, I didn't realise it, but it's the culture of the industry and it's cultures that 
I'd love to set with our sales guys. It's, but it doesn't just happen. It's not, you know, I'm giving you this list, I'm asking you to do it, go do it. Because there's still, there's a massive intimidation factor to that. You're giving a list, you've got to call a thousand people you've never met before. And you're 18, you've got to pretend to know what you're talking about is very intimidating. And I think the culture that was built in, in, in real estate itself, but also in that environment was, you know, give it a crack. Um, what's to lose, all that sort of stuff. And, and you know, I was forced to, to make the first calls in front of people and in front of my boss and these people that would then, I felt like I was being judged. But what they were actually doing and, and, and looking back in hindsight, what they're doing is breaking down that nervousness and saying, don't be nervous. Like, they're just another person. They've got two eyes, a nose and a mouth. There's, there is no difference to whoever they are, whether they've got $5 million properties, they've got a $50 million property or they've got a $200,000, you know, commercial space that you're trying to lease realistically it's as I said before it's a no until you turn it into a yes and and no one's going to do that for you and and I think the way that when I first went in there and then you know even day three day four I could pick up a phone in front of anyone and, and I don't care you know, yeah, you, you're conscious of what you're saying and the environments you're in and everything like that, but you should be able to adapt. And, and the quicker you can adapt to that, the better a salesperson you are. And, and, and from a business perspective, as I as I try and lead this company, it's still very sales-led. Um, and, it, and that's just ingrained in me. Um, and sometimes you get caught going away from that. But, but naturally, most things in life, if you can sell what you're doing or your enjoyment or enjoyment to other people and bring people on a path, everything else will get taken care of. There's not many companies out there that have phenomenal sales and business issues, but they they go, oh, let's pull back our sales and, and work on the business issues. So if you can get sales right, if you can get the ability to talk to people right, I think that's such a good foundation. Um, sometimes it's the hardest foundation, but fortunately for me, it was, you know, confidence has never really been an issue for me. You can ask any of my mates that it's probably shut up <laughs> as opposed to speak up. Um, but for me, going through that, you know, it, it, it is, you know, breaks you down from that lack of confidence and just makes you earn that confidence and you don't get that from other people. Mm, very interesting. So I want to talk a bit more about that initial first business. Um, so the 365 underwear. So talk to us a bit about that. What did you... You know, what were some of those early challenges there, diving into a business of your own um, and almost having to prove to your dad that you could do this? Yeah, it was proving to myself. Um, it's, it's a really uh, good quote that I still live off is, you know what you know and you don't know what you don't know. And starting a business, you know what you know. <laughs> you know you've got to come up with a brand name. You've got to come up with a logo. At that point in time, I was like, I'll build my own website and I'll create a social media page, um, all this sort of stuff. But you don't know what you don't know. And, and figuring that out is the hardest. What don't I know and being aware that you don't know it is, is can be very tricky because you don't want to be jumping in shadows thinking you don't know anything. But you also don't want to be forgetting that You've still got to be challenging, all right, what aren't I doing? What could I be doing? What should I be doing? What do I need to be doing? And I think the early challenges there was was trying to manoeuvre and figure out what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and and a business concept right on a piece of paper is, is one thing, but all of that's just a guess. And when you're actually doing it, you kind of can't guess. You can... Um, you can have a crack. You can you can educate yourself to make a certain decision. And you know, there's there's probably two types of people. There's people that need ninety percent or more to make a decision. There's people that need ten percent to make a decision. Fortunately, I'm a ten percent person. Um, as long as it's it's a good ten percent, sometimes it's not. And and as you grow, it, when you're starting out, that ten percent is enough. 
But as the business becomes, you know, bigger and bigger and, you know, now managing sort of 15 people, you need more than 10%. You're willing to make the decision, but you've got to hold yourself back and you've got to confirm what you're thinking. Or, you know, as, as Google do it really well is, is, is break it. You know, on a side note there, one of the things I found really fascinating doing a bit of a tour of them is they actually pay some of their executives that run their business units more money if they fail a business than if they make, if the business succeeds, which in a concept and in, in the idea of it is phenomenal. But the philosophy behind it is if, you know, places like Google are, are so set to achieve that they'd rather a business flourish or die within the first six to 12 months rather than just hang around for a few years. And they don't, they, they trust their employees to be really good, but their executives to try and break that. And if the business naturally beats that, it's going to be a good business. Mm. Um, when you're starting out, it's a little bit different. You don't have that, you know, um, the infrastructure there and you've just got to navigate what you can. Mm. But, you know, the biggest hurdle, I think, for anyone is, is being aware, being self-aware that you don't know what you don't know um, and just trying to soak up as much from other people. And you can't ask other people to do it for you, but you can ask other people how they did it and, and what are little things. And, and you don't need to take out everything that they say, but just little snippets every time. And I'm, you know, I'm a big one on saying, you know, every time you meet someone, try and meet someone else. So um, especially if you're meeting up, which is, you know, someone with more experience, someone with more abilities, more skills, more achievements, whatever it is, you know, if they can introduce you to someone, you're learning more again. And, you know, you do that sort of compounds over time. It's, it's a fair bit of information you're taking on. So it is that that's definitely was the biggest hurdle initially. It still is because, you know, you, you never know what you don't know. Mm. Love it. Okay. So many takeaways I'm personally taking away from this, but no, I, I loved your, your, um, your last comment about meet, get someone, the person who you meet, get them to introduce you to someone else. And I think that's a huge takeaway for all of us. I think that, you know, it really is about um, learning from each other and, and building our networks um, as best we can. So, no, very, very cool. So talk to us a bit about the movement from that business into what you're doing now. Yeah, so it was a pretty organic move, really. I sort of, um, I was building the 365 business. Uh, um, subscriptions take a while, so it's a little bit slow, but it's better in, you know, 12 months' time because every sale you get today, you're still getting in 12 months' time and it's compounding again, um, using that word. But in the, in the first period when we we're still waiting for our stock to come back from China and, um, you know, going through that process, I realised I was going to run out of money pretty quickly. Yeah, I had... <laughs> you know, 24, 23, whenever it was, I had enough money from real estate and working and, you know, you can live off sort of 40 grand there and you're earning a lot more than that, <laughs> that um, you can bank a little bit. Um, so that gave me a little bit of time and I was still living at home. I was operating the business out of home. So it was very limited costs, but that still didn't pay for my beers on the weekend and, you know, go to the footy and do these types of things um, with my mates. And so I, I kind of came up with this idea whilst I was still playing and very committed to playing football um, for a local team that, you know, the same way you see someone running track, running the tan or the bay or wherever you are around the globe, you know, look at their wrist or look in their pockets and they'll have a smart device, you know, a Fitbit, a wearable, a Garmin, a Sunto, a Magellan or whatever it is, an iPhone now tracking everything you do and putting it on the Nike apps and the Strava. And, and I thought about why that doesn't happen in team sport. Um, and this was back in sort of 2015. I was looking and going, you know, local teams 
do not track any of their players. Why don't they track any of their players? Because everyone else seems to be tracked. Um, and, and surely with more information, you can make better decisions. And and that's where the, sort of the, the, the genesis or the, the idea for, for SPT came about. Um, it was pretty simple to come up with a name for it. And sports performance tracking <laughs> is pretty direct in what we do. Um, but, yeah, and initially, you know, knew I wasn't technical outside of being able to build a pretty crappy Wix website, um, which I actually found the other day and it was laughable. One of the guys here found it still online <laughs> and sent it to me. It was pretty humorous. I did take it down pretty quickly. I took a screenshot. but um, Always need that screenshot. Yeah, yeah. I had to remind myself how far it's come because that was a bad website. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, initially partnered with a company that was selling hardware already. Um, it was called Magellan. They were owned by Navman, the world's biggest um, GPS um, technology company at that time. I don't know if they still are. Um, but partnered with them, rebranded the box, gave a vest with it. I actually cut the wrist component off it and sold it for $125 more than what they were. And within... <laughs> yeah, within Within... I think it was about eight weeks. We were out of the garage of my family home. We were selling more online than what um, Harvey Norman and JB Hi-Fi were combined. Now, I've also what? got to say they were a pretty average-looking product. <laughs> um, GPS is GPS at that time. You know, it wasn't hugely advanced, but it was good enough and it'd give you a, an approximate. Um, so it did have a value and they just didn't know what it was and I found that I could apply it into a pocket into a football game where you don't actually have to see it because it wasn't sexy um, and through my networks of playing sort of football and, and playing sport um, it started filtering out that way so it was pretty organic initially and it was just selling online bu- buying it X selling for Y <laughs> but then after a period of time I knew that I had to build some sort of IP and software behind it otherwise I'm going to become redundant <laughs> And, and I didn't want that to happen because it was making good money. Mm. I find it fascinating. I think it's, you know, the idea of going to a store, seeing a product and going, I'm just going to manipulate this a little bit and then resell it for a higher price is hilarious. I think it's, you know, it's things like that that you, you always, you often wonder, why don't we do more of this? Why don't we try and, you know, repackage things in different ways and, you know, and repurpose them? And I think that it's so cool to hear that that's how you started um, your brand, which is, you know, obviously now world renowned. So talk to me a little bit about um, when you got to that stage and you thought, okay, look, we need to get some IP back behind this. We've got, obviously, people want this product. I've actually got to build it out properly. Talk to us about those early challenges there. How did you face them? How did you go about this? Yeah, so that was probably the next step where I came from a friendship group of sporting people and those types, and I was looking for software engineers. And I didn't have a friend that probably knew a friend that had software engineer at that point in time. I remember asking around, everyone's like, I don't know, a software engineer? You know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds that were a little bit younger than me were starting to get into that. Um, So I... I jumped on LinkedIn and literally Googled or LinkedIn searched um, software engineers and found a found a university that seemed to have a leading program, contacted a lecturer there. I asked sort of who the best was in terms of, or who was there, one of their leading sort of software engineers that's still at uni in year one or two, because I couldn't pay them much, if, if anything at all, and found a name 
ended up contacting that name through a mutual friend that I had that was very loosely mutual. It's, it's very convoluted, but basically got to a guy called Andreas Limberopoulos, um, who was a software engineer. I sat down with him, kind of said, look, I've got this business idea. This is what it is. This is what I've been doing. This is what I've achieved in a minimal amount of time. I reckon if we can build this, here's what we can do. Um, I said, if you want in, you've got a week to build this platform and this sort of dashboard. Within three days, he sent it back to me and said, what about this? And I've also added a bunch of stuff. So I got very, very fortunate that I got a very intelligent guy there with ambition and drive as well. Um, so he he came on board. He got some equity. Um, I, I also approached a, a company to build some hardware for us. And they initially came back with a quote of, of a, uh, this was in 2015 or 2014, I think, um, of about 120 grand. Um, and I was like, okay, <laughs> what do I do there? I was like, dad. And he's like, don't even think about it. Um, I was like, all right, well, I'll go to the bank. And they're like, don't even think about it. And so I turned back to them and, and they really loved the idea. And again, I got, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a large portion of luck, you know, finding Andreas, someone that wanted to do it very easily. Very easily. Um, then finding Plant Innovation that had been having conversations with another party to do the same thing um, or a very similar thing. Um, it was more... More for it was more of an activity tracker for um, you know Auskick, and so you could see how many kicks the kids were having at Auskick and these types of things, which was probably a little bit early, um, but they really liked how we were applying it to that amateur space, and so I turned back to them and said, look. I can't pay you, but I can give you equity in my company that's not worth anything. And they stupidly or smartly now said yes. Um, so again, I gave away about 10% in equity to those two to come on board and, and, and effectively um, you know, commence what, what is now known as SPT. Um, so that's now grown and grown and grown. And we've gone from probably back then it was me and Andreas sitting in, in um, a little shared co-shared office in, in South Yarra um, in Melbourne to now sort of having our own space in, in, in um, Abbotsford in, in Melbourne still with, with 15 guys and girls here um, but also bringing on some it looks like we'll be bringing on sort of 10 to 15 more globally in the next hopefully not few months but yeah hopefully within the next 12 months so it's not all jam-packed into one small period mm. No, love it and I it's so cool to hear the progression and I think that's what's so interesting about this whole thing I mean as you said you know you started just two of you guys this guy who you randomly found and you know came on board as your co-founder and you know so I, f I find it fascinating hearing that progression and I think that it's something that we can all you know take away that idea of I just had this idea I ran with it I met the right people and I just made it work you know I think most people would have stopped at that 100k to build this okay nah this isn't for me but you just kept pushing through and you made it work and so very cool and I think there's so much we can take away there um just for everyone's information so SPT it's now as we were saying it's now gone global it's in used in 65 countries in 10 different languages um across eight different sports with thousands of athletes per day using the platform yeah. um, using the device so it's it's phenomenal really it's actually it's quite hard for our social media to keep up we're now in over 100 countries oh, it's now closer to 20,000 users oh. um <laughs> 
The languages haven't changed because they become a bit of a pain to, to add language like, uh, strings and things like that on, um, and that covers the majority of them. Um, but yeah, it's you know we sit here and someone came to me the other day and said, oh, you, your site still say this. I'm like, oh, well, if we had to change it every day that we brought on a new country or a new user in a new country or whatever it was, it's it's probably too onerous. So we ended up sort of sitting there and just saying X plus, and that still covered. <laughs> yeah. Technically, it's still correct, but um, yeah. yeah, it's it's it's. I mean, it's it's really enjoyable to watch. Um, it is a bit like Instagram, though. Um, you know, no one no one shows you the the bad times of what they're doing. They only send you the photos of them in Tulum, in Mexico, or you know, sitting on sitting at the Eiffel Tower in Paris. So there is a lot that goes behind it, and and, and a lot of the guys here that do an amazing job um, to to get it to what it is. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty nice sort of see those stats and and everything from sort of a, a garage to to now having teams that you know academies and, and things like that that are going to the World Cup in next week and um, all from a, a pretty innocent idea that's far beyond, you know, what, what I ever thought it could have been. Mm. And I love it. I think also the, the time progression as well. It was only four years or so, four, five years. Yeah, you know, so we launched it in early 2015. Okay, so, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, so very recent. So I think that's also something for us all to note, um, you know, these things, you know, the progression can, you know, if you work harder, that the progression can be what it has, you know, what it has been for Will. So I love that. That's super cool. Um, cool. So as we come to the close of today's episode and to our interview here today, I just firstly want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Will, and the awesome work you're doing um, and that you have done. I, I think it's so cool for us to see and for us to uh, learn from your stories that we can take on board all your learnings and your early challenges and struggles and we can apply that to what we're trying to build or to how we're trying to navigate um, our lives and where we're going. So I, we really appreciate it. Yeah, no worries. I think, you know, it's, you know, I love listening to these types of things when I was coming through and, and building it and still do and, and, and still read books about, um, you know, other people that had success. And there's one thing that, that I've learned that there's a really, you know, there's, there's one common thing that every person that's had success or has built a product or is continuing to build a product or has, and it's that they didn't stop. And I think that's, you know, it's very, very easy to stop. Um, it's very, very easy to throw your hands up and blame other things and other people and other opportunities and, and these types of things. But no one sort of got to where they wanted to go by stopping. And and for me, you know, the advice that I remember listening to, um, uh, Mark Andreessen from a big VC firm in, in the US was that that is the one correlation, that, that people that are wanting to get to where they want to go, that's, that's the thing that they have. Um, everything else plays a part, you know, luck, timing, effort. But at the end of the day, if you stop, you don't get luck. If you stop, you don't get timing. If you stop... It's just not going to happen. So for me, you know, sort of the, the advice that I've always had was that, and, and that stuck true to me. Um, and I think, you know, for people listening out there, um, that's something that I'd, I'd definitely say to, to live by is, you know, there are tough times and, and the, there's more tough times than there are happy times. Even even if you're looking at companies like Atlassian, they, they quote the same thing. They say 85% of the time they're struggling. Um, but they don't write articles about how they're hating what they're doing or they don't write articles because no one wants to read about the things they're struggling with. They want to read about how sexy it is to have billions of dollars. Um, but that's, that's, you know, the, that's the result of, of the output that you have and, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But as long as you continue to, to grind... I think you, you'll get you'll get to somewhere, and whether that's the top of Everest or you know base camp, at the end of the day, you're learning a lot more that way than not doing it and all, all, all by stopping. Mm. I love that. 
so many good takeaways from this. Um, great. So I'll head into our last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at The Peers Project. And that is, what do you think is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? Um, what do I think the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I think one of the things that makes it valuable is that, that it is, if you're passionate about it, it becomes second nature. And if, if you can create a passion, um, that's one thing. But if you're naturally passionate about it, you're going to figure out ways to, to make it work. Um, you know, going back to sort of my experience, because I can only talk about me, but, you know, recently we've, we've parted ways with the sales guy here and it was, the conversation was, do you think you could become passionate about it or are you passionate about it? And after a period of time, you know, he decided his passion was elsewhere and, and, I think that's the best thing for our company and the best thing for him because if, if you're not passionate about it, don't spend 75% of your life doing it. And you've got, you know, there's one thing that doesn't change and that's time. And you've got so much time that you've got to spend your life doing something you're passionate about. And whether it's passionate about the product or the process or the learnings, the value of that is that you, you're going to do it better. And, and no one, you know, if, if you're passionate about a conversation on one thing and not passionate about a conversation on another thing, it is so easy to pick up. And, and that's the same with work. So it's very easy to, to pick up if you're going to be successful because you really want to do it as opposed to because you're being told to do it. Love it. Love that. Where can people learn more about you and SPT, Will? Um, People can jump on the website, which is www.spgps.com or sportsperformancetracking.com or just Google us. We come up in most of the top answers. And I'm, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. Um, obviously, that's where we met. Um, I, I love sort of connecting with people through there. So feel free to, to jump on, send a message. I try and respond to everyone um, because, you know, I really wanted that and I still want that from people that, that I, I count as um, sort of colleagues in the industry at, at all different levels. Um, a lot of the times you don't get answers, but when you do, um, you appreciate it and, and I still appreciate it a, a, a lot. Um, so LinkedIn and, and our website. Um, and we're doing a few, a few other things as well. So stay tuned on, uh, on that. Love it. Cool. Thanks so much, Phil. We had an awesome chat, I think. Yeah, no, I really <laughs> appreciate it. I love chatting about what we do and, and sort of going back to that question, it's passionate. It's, I'm really passionate about what we do and how we do it and, and learnings and, and improving. Um, so I really appreciate your time, Michelle. Of course. Great. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>